1. Romans chapter 1. The Lord, the Lord is a God of wrath. Or is a God of wrath. How often do you hear that kind of statement? I, I, I think not many times. The world likes to focus on the fact that God is a God of love. love. That's right. And the fact that God is a God of love is precious to us. It should be. We who have been bought by the blood of Christ, redeemed through his sacrifice, we give thanks for the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But the truth is, only when we have an appreciation of the fact that God is also and equally a God of wrath will we truly appreciate and love the love of God. And we, we really won't truly appreciate his love if we don't get that. And it's sad to see that the Christian world has kind of fallen into the trap of re, regarding the wrath of God as a subject which should be avoided. I mean, there are, and I put it in quotes, Christian pastors, preachers that will not talk about sin and they will not talk about God's wrath. Those who believe in the wrath of God say very little about it in our day and age. The subject of divine wrath has become kind of a taboo subject and professing Christians to a great, great extent, have kind of accepted the world's view about the wrath of God. The culture we live in, you know, kind of views God as the wonderful grandfather who, you know, can never punish his posterity for any sin. And most modern people think uh, or speak of God's love and the reward of heaven, but they find it necessary not to talk about God's retribution towards sinners. But truth is, it really doesn't matter what the world thinks or even what we think. It does matter, but not as much as that we understand what God's word has to say about God being a God of wrath. That's what's at issue. A study of a biblical concordance, and I don't know if you use one of those or have ever used one. It's basically, you can look up a, a word that's in the scripture and you can find every place where that word is used. So a study of a biblical concordance reveals that, that God speaks a whole lot more about his wrath than he does his love. J.I. Packer wrote that the Bible could right, rightfully be called the, the book of God's wrath. And he says that based on the fact that in Genesis chapter 3, we see God's retribution towards Adam and Eve. They are sent out of the Garden of Eden because of their choice uh, to disobey God. And then he takes it all the way to Revelation 20, where you find the great white throne judgment. And in between the beginning and the end are many examples of God pouring out his wrath on sinners. Clearly, the theme of God's wrath is not a subject which the scriptures are afraid to address or talk about. So why should we be? Why should we be inhibited in talking about it? 
Why would we feel the need to kind of sidestep the issue? What is it that makes even Christians shrink from declaring the wrath of God when sharing the good news of the gospel? We have a, a feeling that we have to focus solely on the love of God and, and God's wonderful plan for people's life. And what lies at the bottom of our hesitation? And what we're going to see is Romans chapter 1 answers that question, or those several questions. And one thing is clear, that the Apostle Paul had no hesitation whatsoever in declaring that the Lord is a God of wrath. It's significant for us to notice that he does so in the book of Romans. Now, why I say that's significant is because this is the, the epistle that is explaining in detail the good news of Jesus Christ. And a lot of people don't think that talking about the wrath of God is good news. Only talking about the love of God. But he goes into great detail in this letter about it. In fact, he speaks of God's wrath 12 times in this epistle. And, and the first time being in our text for today, which is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And he, what we're going to see then is that in the book where he takes the greatest time and energy and care in explaining God's sovereign plan of salvation for sinners, he essentially begins, he begins his argument with a focus on a culture that is under God's wrath. So let's read our text for today. It's going to be more than Romans 1, but we're going to just jump into these three verses. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So in this short section of Romans 1, we're going to say three things about God's wrath. The first of those is the nature of God's wrath. What is it like? The second thing we'll see is the object of God's wrath. Where is it directed? And the third thing we'll see is the reason for God's wrath. Why does he pour it out? But before we do that, let's understand the connection between what we just read and what Paul has said to this point about the gospel. Remember last week we were in Romans 1, 16 and 17 where we find the theme of the letter, which is that Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, in other words, to all people, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So he, he had stated that he was ashamed to preach the gospel. And he explained the reason he wasn't, because it was the power of God. It's the power of God to save sinners from the consequence of their sin. Paul didn't shrink back from declaring the good news of Jesus Christ because it was God's message of deliverance for sinners. 
And then he gives the reason the gospel is the power of God. How it is the power of God to save sinners. And what he says there is that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And what he means by that is that the gospel to lost sinners reveals how they can have a right relationship with God through imputed righteousness from Christ. And by imputed righteousness, we're actually talking about righteousness that is placed on our account. So the righteousness of Jesus is put on our account. Just like you would put money on your credit card account to pay down that bill. Well, Jesus paid our bill. He took our sin, our sin was imputed to him, put on his account, and his righteousness was imputed to our account. It is not our own acts of self-righteousness, but God's declaration of us being righteous in his sight because of what Jesus had done for us. That's what he means by, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So why is it necessary that we acquire this righteousness of God which is revealed in the scripture? And that is what Paul begins to explain in verse 18. And I want you to notice the first word of verse 18. F-O-R. What's that doing? It's connecting to what he's just said about the gospel and the righteousness of God being revealed in it and that it's got the power to save sinners. For this reason, it is that, because people are sinners and they deserve the wrath of God. He's giving an explanation of why we need God's righteousness. And in a nutshell, It is this, that mankind stands under the condemnation of God because of their sin. They deserve the wrath of God. And he shows that every person is condemned because they are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. And that's not just 118 through 20. It's going to be 118 all the way through 320. And he will just hammer it home that... Everyone born into this world needs God's righteousness because they're a sinner three times over. They're a sinner because they have imputed sin on their account when they're born. Because Adam and Eve's choice was placed on their account. They are of his race, so they have his sin. Secondly, they are born with a sin nature. David put it in these words, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. I was born a sinner, deserving of the wrath of God. We saw that last week in Ephesians 2. And then thirdly, they deserve God's wrath because all sin, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's what they actually practice sin. They do sin. They commit a violation of God's nature and glory. And that's true for all pagan and moral unbelievers, and that's true for all moral but judgmental people, and that's true for all self-righteous religious people who trust more in ritual than in righteousness coming from God's grace. And so God begins to explain the wrath of God in 118, and he begins again with the nature of God's wrath. 
Now, earlier, I, I kind of raised the question as to why many Christians want to sidestep the issue of God's wrath. I mean, if biblical writers weren't afraid to write about it, both Old and New Testament, why should we be? And the reason the culture doesn't like it, and I think the reason that even many Christians don't like to talk about it is because of they don't understand the nature of God's wrath. It makes them feel bad about themselves. No one likes that, so let's avoid that. In fact, one preacher that I could name, largest church in America, says he won't talk about sin because people don't need to feel bad about themselves when they come to church. They feel bad about themselves all the time. So he won't talk about sin. Hmm. I believe that at the root of the problem is the feeling that somehow, somehow the idea of God's wrath, it's kind of not worthy of God to talk about him being a God of judgment and wrath. For many, it suggests some sort of a loss of self-control or of response which is based on wounded pride, you know, or just a plain bad temper. I mean, that that kind of re- reactive behavior is not only irrational, but it is also wholly sinful. But to attribute such behavior patterns, God would be wrong. That would be sinful. If this shows how people think of God, the problem is not with God showing wrath, but it is rather people understanding the wrath of God, the nature of it, by looking at the nature of man's wrath. God's wrath is never like the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally evil attitude and actions of sinful people. Our problem is that we compare God's wrath with the wrath of sinful people. We measure God by us. That's always a, a bad maneuver. Because we'll always fall short. The truth is, the wrath of God is really as much a divine perfection as is his love, his his compassion, his power, his wisdom. Every other one of his attributes that are perfect. Let me say it again. The wrath of God is as much a divine perfection as is his love or any of those other things. It's impossible for God, who is infinitely holy and delights in that which is holy, not to hate that which is unholy. Right? Our problem, then, is stop stop seeing God's wrath in light of human wrath. The very nature of God makes hell as much a reality as heaven. So how are we supposed to understand and describe the nature of God's wrath? And we, we should begin by saying that it is never, it is never like man's sinful passion. It's not violent. Uh, a violent outburst which comes from wounded pride. Now, there are times in the scripture where God is seen to act in anger and pour out wrath, but that's a different word than is used in our text for today. 
but it is based on the, the word that's used in our text for today. The Greek word for wrath as used in Romans 1 and in the book of Romans 12 times is orge, O-R-G-E, orge. Kind of sounds like an ogre, doesn't it? Yeah, and you think of an ogre, the view, not the Disney view of an ogre, you know, but an ogre is like evil and violent and destroy, destroys things. But that's not what this word means. God's wrath, this word orge, refers to a settled indignation towards that which is sinful. A settled indignation towards that which is sinful. So God's wrath is his settled indignation toward that which is evil, which means that which is contrary to his nature and his glory. Now, A.W. Pink describes God's wrath this way. So good. The wrath of God is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes upon evildoers. God is angry against sin because it is a rebelling against his authority, a wrong done to his inviolable sovereignty. Now notice that Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men in verse 18. And it's important to understand that when Paul talks about God's wrath being revealed here, that we see it as something that is presently being revealed. The, the verb is revealed, is written in the present tense. And it doesn't mean at the moment that Paul's writing. It's a continuing present. The idea is God's wrath is now, presently, and continues to be revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's not just a reference to the final outpouring of God's judgment against evildoers that is recorded in Revelation 20, 11 through 14, the great white throne judgment, right, where God gathers all the wicked, the dead, the living, liars, he identifies several types of sin, and they're thrown into the lake of fire where they will be judged eternally. It's not just reference to that. Though his wrath does refer to that, it's not limited to that. God has throughout time and is presently revealing his holy indignation towards ungodliness and unrighteousness. From the discipline of Adam and Eve in the garden, banishing them from the garden because of their sin, to the wrath that will be revealed in the great tribulation and the great white throne judgment, God reveals his settled indignation toward all that are sinful. And God reveals his wrath in several different ways. Consider that for a moment. I mean, one of those ways is in death and destruction, right? He brings about death and destruction. Way back in Genesis again, in Genesis 6 through 8, it tells us in 6 that God looked down from heaven and he saw that every intention of man's thought 
was evil from the beginning, and so he decided that he would destroy all living creatures on the earth, save eight that went into the ark, and animals, creatures that he had created, you know, uh, representations of those as well. But eight human beings were saved from his death and destruction that he rained down on the earth. An entire generation of the children of Israel were put to death in the wilderness because of their refusal to trust in God, that he would protect them and give them victory in the land. And that entire generation faced death because of their sin, except for Joshua and Caleb. God rained down sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, destroying the entire cities and saved just three people, Lot and his two daughters. And it was because of their wickedness that had risen up into heaven that he brought forth that kind of wrath. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 7. 70 by the Romans, and the hundreds of thousands who died as a result, it was because of God's wrath for the greatest act of unrighteousness and ungodliness, that of rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and putting him to death. Such demonstrations of God's wrath towards sin isn't limited to ancient times. We could probably think of several in the last couple of centuries. I mean, I, I, one that struck me was December 25th, 1908 in Messina, Italy, where a blasphemous story was written in the newspaper. And in the newspaper, the editor challenged God. And he challenged him to demonstrate his power with an earthquake. Hmm. Now, God doesn't always respond this way. But just three days later, an earthquake hit there, and 84,000 people died. I grew up in the 60s with all that rock and roll music. I remember, you know, many bands from then that I enjoyed listening to in my ungodly and unrighteous state of life. One of them was The Doors. And the, the lead singer of The Doors was Jim Morrison. And it was shortly after Jim Morrison wrote and made known, cancel my subscription to the resurrection. Within a matter of a few days, he was found dead in a bathtub. Hmm. Some people would suggest, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree, that what we're facing with the pandemic right now is God's wrath being poured out upon a godless world. That was suggested regarding AIDS. Some of you remember that. <laughs> that wasn't that long ago, you know, that God was pouring out his wrath on those who engaged in certain type of lifestyle choices from homosexuality and lesbianism to intravenous use of needles and so on and so forth. Now, I'll leave that for God to tell us if those two things were an expression of his wrath, but it's not hard to think that it could be. But God's wrath is seen not only in death and destruction, but also in trials and tribulations. And we all face those, right? I mean, the nation of Israel being divided after Solomon's uh, death was a result of God's wrath 
his wrath against Solomon's failure to honor him and instead honoring his pagan wives and building temples to their false gods. God's settled indignation toward sin can be, uh, sin can be seen in sending the children of Israel into exile, first to Assyria and then second to Babylon. And the reason he did so is because they failed to keep his commandments and they began to believe in and follow the gods of those pagan nations which were attacking them. Many of the trials that we face are no doubt due to God's discipline in our life for the choices that we are making. Not, not every trial is that. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying every trial or tribulation that we have is a result of our personal sin. You just go crazy if that's what you're thinking. But you can understand that those trials and tri- tribulations are the result of living in a world that is under sin and being ruled by the God of this evil world, Satan. And then, yes, sometimes our own choices will bring trial into our life. It could be sickness, it could be uh, an, an accident, or, you know, for, we're drinking and we drove and we got in an accident, we could be crippled for life. That would be a natural, godly discipline for that sin. You could think of many such examples. God's wrath is also seen demonstrated in another way. Right within our text of Romans chapter 1, we'll see where God sometimes gives people over to their sin. It'll be in verse 24 and 26 and 28. Three times it says God gave them over to passions, to lust, to depraved minds, to depraved behavior. God gives them over so that their sin will just run rampant and bring consequences upon them. And that is the nature of God's wrath. It is his settled indignation toward sin, toward that which is contrary to his nature and his glory. That's the nature of his wrath. What is the object of his wrath? Well, right in verse 18, it tells us, it's seen in the statement that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, it could be that Paul's not intending to bring a great distinction between those two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness. You could sum it up just in sin. God is revealing his wrath against sin. But if there is a distinction, and it seems that Paul may be intending this because he uses these two words, if there is a distinction, it's probably along the lines of that ungodliness is sin as it relates to religious things, as it relates to God. And unrighteousness is that which refers to that which is immoral in nature, not just sexual immorality, but immoral, a violation of God's law and our actions towards other people. And that's why some people say, well, the distinction is that the word ungodliness relates to the first half of God's Ten Commandments. 
that speak about our relationship with God. You should worship no other God, make no graven image, keep the Sabbath, don't blaspheme his name, etc., etc. And then the second word, unrighteousness, would deal with the second half of the Ten Commandments, which relates more with man-on-man kind of relationship, honoring your parents, not committing adultery, no coveting, etc., etc., And that may very well be the intent of what he's saying. Whatever the difference is, the impact is absolutely the same. God's wrath is being revealed. And that is the object of it. All the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And then we get to the reason for God's wrath. And it is stated uh, in the rest of verse 19 and 20. Why is it that God reveals his wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness of people? That's what the text shows us. And there are eight points. Eight points. I know that's way too many points for any sermon. But it really is just eight statements that come directly out of the text. So you're going to be writing in what I give you. I'm not going to make a whole lot of comments about some of them. I'm not going to make a whole lot of comments about any of them. I, not the way I'd like to. But eight points that Paul makes that shows the reason for God's wrath. Number one, it is a re- revelation of truth being suppressed. Why is God pouring out this wrath? Because of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So it is a revelation of truth, isn't it? Of truth that's being stressed. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And the word suppress comes from a Greek word that expresses the idea of holding fast to something or holding something back, as in the sense of restraining or suppressing. So in a positive sense, this word could be used, and it is in the scriptures, of believers holding fast to that which they have been taught, the instructions that they have received, and, and the attitudes and actions that reflect the life of their save, the Savior in them. For example, Luke 8.15 says, this is Luke's uh, writing of the parable of the good of the soils. And he says, as for that in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, Paul writes, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain, is how the ESV has it. But it's the same word, hold fast to the traditions that I gave to you. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, test everything, hold fast to that which is good. You get the picture of it? This word is like holding on, right? Holding on. Sometimes holding on in a positive sense. Don't let it go. You need this. Sometimes in a negative sense. And in the negative sense, as used in the text today, it refers to preventing the doing of something, hindering it, holding it down, suppressing it. Kind of like a a parent who would have a child that's throwing a temper tantrum, and they pick up their child and they wrap their arms around them, they hold tight, and they won't let that child continue that kind of behavior. 
Now, this is the way that word is used in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 6 as well, where it says, talking about the man of lawlessness not yet being revealed. The day of the Lord hadn't happened yet. And Paul says, and you know what is restraining him, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. You know what is holding him back, what is hindering him now so that he may be revealed in his time. God is holding him back holding him down, suppressing him until the day that has been appointed for him to be released and run amok in the world. So the initial reason, the initial reason why we see God's wrath being revealed is because of truth being held back, hindered, restrained, suppressed. And he doesn't identify that truth in this verse. We'll talk about it a little bit more as we go on. But at this moment, just think of the world that we live in. Is it not a world that suppresses the truth? Big time, right? Big time. And you might be thinking, yeah, that's right. The, the whole COVID thing, the suppression of the truth. I think we'd probably all agree that there has been a suppression of truth regarding that. Or the vaccines, come on, we know, we really know. And another person says, no, 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 follow the science. It's suppressing of truth. You know it's happening. Or politicians in general, that is how they practice. They suppress the truth. It doesn't matter whether you're a conservative politician or a progressive politician. They like to suppress the truth. And did you know that we like to do it too? I, I don't want to reveal myself to you entirely. You may not like me if I do. You may not like me already. I don't want to make it worse. So we hide things. We restrain showing ourselves, right? We, we hold back because we don't want the truth about ourselves to get out. That's our world that we live in. Number two, it's re- revelation about God. Notice what it says. For what can be known about God? For what can be known about God? And what truth about God is not explained in this verse, but it's going to be kind of dealt with in verse 20, where it talks about his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature. But at this point, just understand a reason for God's wrath being revealed is because people are suppressing the truth about God. About God. They suppress the truth about lots of things, but more critical than anything else is suppressing the revelation about God. Number three, it's a revelation which is known, evident, and plain to people. It's known, evident, and plain to people. Where do you get that? For what can be known about God is plain. Some of your translations would have evident. The Greek word that's used there, I would translate manifested. But it all means the same thing. It's made clear. It's made evident. It's made plain, this truth about God. The NAS and perhaps some other translations say that the truth of God is evident within them, within these people, which would suggest that Paul is speaking about an an internal recognition by people that there is a God. Uh, Now, that truth is revealed in Scripture. It is. 
God makes himself known internally in people. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. I think that's a bad translation. It's evident to them. It's plain to them. The, I, I, uh, that the truth about God is outwardly evident, plain, or clear. If people would just open their eyes, they would see that God is there before them. Because the truth that he's talking about, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, are seen in creation. So he's talking about what is clear to the eyes. Number four, it's a revelation in which God chose to reveal himself to people. A revelation in which God chose, God chose, let me say that again, God chose to reveal himself to people. What it says in our text is, because God has shown it to them. And the word shown is the same word that was used in the previous phrase, evident, clear, plain. God has chosen to make it clear to people. God did that. And the point of this is that the, the truth about that can be known about God which is evident, plain, clear. It's not that way because people have been seeking for the truth of God, but because God chose to reveal himself to people who had chosen to rebel against him, had chosen to suppress the truth about him. It is plain throughout the scripture that God takes the initiative in revealing himself to people so that they might come to know him. It is clear throughout the Bible that people do not search for God. They do not search for God as though, you know, God's playing a game of hide and seek. See if you can catch me. See if you can find me. No, God's not playing games like that. The scripture says there is none who seek God, not even one. Paul will say that specifically in Romans chapter 3. So it is God who is doing this. God is making himself known through creation, confronting people about their sin, calling on people to repent and believe. Uh, and Jesus expressly said in his own ministry, I came to seek, I came to seek and save that which was lost. You did not choose me, I chose you out of the world. Number five is the revelation was the has existed since the beginning. Well, depending on your translations, most of the translations have this phrase, for since the creation of the world at the beginning of verse 19. The ESV puts it at the end, and that's all right, but understand that that phrase is, is demonstrating that this revelation of truth about God, which is being suppressed by people, has been there, clear, plain, since the creation of the world. So Paul takes this revelation all the way back to the beginning, when he created all things, when God spoke the world into existence. By, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry hosts, by the breath of his mouth, and he gathered the waters into a heap, and he made the foundation of the earth, and, he, and then he put Adam and Eve in the garden. And from the moment their eyes came open, they could see God in what he had made. They could see God 
it's been from the beginning. God has never lacked a witness to his handiwork. This is, you know, what the scripture says in uh, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. His handiwork. In Psalm 8.3, David writes, When I look at, the, at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you should take note of him? God, I look up, I look around, and all I see is your handiwork. And it's been that way from the beginning. Paul and David were in complete agreement. The creation declares the truth of God's existence. Number six is a revelation of his invisible attributes. His invisible attributes. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. So those things which are unseeable can be clearly perceived or understood when one gives consideration and thought to what they do see. That which is invisible can be seen by what is visible. That's what he's saying. It's almost like what John says in his epistle. He says, uh, if you can't love God, I mean, people who you can see, how, how would you love God who you can't see? You can see people, love them. If you don't love people who you see, you're not going to love God who you can't see. So it's invisible. It's almost like what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3 and verse 8, where he uses the wind as a metaphor for being born from above, being born again by the Holy Spirit's ministry. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How many of you have seen wind? That's right, none of you have. You cannot see wind. You can see the effects of the wind. You can see its effects. And that's what Jesus said. You can't see the Holy Spirit. He's invisible. But you can definitely see his work of causing regeneration in a dead sinner, giving them eternal life. You can see that. That's what you can tell when you look at a person and you think, man, you're completely different. You look different. You talk different. Your desires are different. The old has gone away. The new has come. I mean, it's as clear as night and day. It's as plain as the the pimple on the end of your nose, if you have a pimple. I mean, it is clear. It's plain. But it's invisible attributes. So God, who is invisible in a sense, becomes visible, is what Paul is saying, through what he has made. And this is the meaning of verse 20, where he says the invisible attributes, which is literally, as the King James has, the, the invisible things of him. And the, but that he's referring to God's attributes. Well, that's clear by the next two... Uh, Next part, right, is eternal power and divine nature. And Paul's word that he uses for divine nature, it's only found here in the New Testament. And it is distinct from the word power. Power is 
kind of singular. It looks to one attribute, while divine nature serves as a summary for many attributes which constitute divine nature. And the word clearly that he says is clearly seen comes from a word which means to think over with great care or to comprehend something on the basis of thought and consideration. And the word translated perceived in the ESV or understood maybe in your translations, that too is found only here in the New Testament. And it refers to the acquisition of definite knowledge. Get that? So you have clearly perceived, which is you think over a matter, you comprehend something based on your thought and musing and all of that, and it is becomes absolutely clear. You, you, you get definite knowledge about God by looking at what he has made. And the context makes it plain that comprehending and having a true perception of God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, is not possible naturally, right? It's not possible naturally. It's not available to sinner. It depends on God making himself known, which we just saw. And likewise, from the use of the terms Paul uses the the revelation of God is not supposed to stop with mere perception. Understanding is intended to produce a definite conclusion that makes definite changes in our lives. Otherwise, they wouldn't continue to suppress the truth. Right? Well, we'll pick it up there next week because we're going to remember the Lord Bring your insert with you next week. We'll be finishing it and going on. But consider what God has saved us from. His holy wrath. So Pastor Greg is going to come up after we sing a couple of songs and draw our attention to what Jesus has done for us by delivering us. So the worship team, come on up and let's sing those couple of songs.